Good morning. John outlived the rest of the apostles by almost half a century. Um, he's the last living apostle and then the final eyewitness in an age where all kinds of people claimed to speak for God. John was in a class by himself. He heard, saw, and touched Jesus. The word made flesh. He wrote this letter toward the end of the first century. And as he puts the finishing touches on the written foundation, the written foundation provided by the apostles, he does what none of the other apostles did with the same degree of clarity. He describes stages of faith. Look what he says, 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. He writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He talks about children, young men or adolescents and adults. Because with children, he says, I am writing to you little children. And when he writes about children, I think he's describing all of the readers. So not just those who were immature, he's describing all of them because through faith in Christ, we become children of God, and we never outgrow that. We are children. He remains father. So it's a description of all readers, and it's not just children. It's little children. It's a, it's a term of affection. And again, they're children of God through reception of the gospel. There's an article that I included from um, Face of Grace, which is a blog series that we're putting on the website now going through the Gospel of John, and uh, if you want to allude to that, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about from John 1, 12, and 13 that in terms of becoming ch children of God, it says that we receive Christ and believe in his name, and there's a number of ways to receive Christ. It results, it comes from believing and then receiving, and in the context of the first century, uh, this wasn't merely a private prayer, but a public profession. When you became a member of the church, there was a baptism service that attended. It's not like ours today. There'd be people watching, and some of them wouldn't be smiling. So when you were baptized, you were identified with this Christian thing. And in so identifying yourself, as we've said, if you were a Jew and were baptized, you might then make your way to the synagogue because it was the center of community life. It was where you 
met with friends, it's where you did business. The only welfare type of opportunities are through the synagogue. And so when you became a Christian as a Jew, you were committing financial suicide. And you were clipping your ability to end up walking on the good life relative to finances. You would maybe want to go back into the synagogue and someone could well stop you and say, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> um, aren't you one of those ones that believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And, yeah, we heard that you were baptized. That troubles us because that's not in line with our beliefs. So you don't belong here. And then what you would do then being cut off, from this kind of support, what would you do? Then you would go into where the church was gathering, not just because you wanted to, but because you needed to. This was the support that you had. You might well be ostracized by family. And this becomes your new family. And again, why I say this is not to say it's good or bad, but that, that it was a different Thing than it is today, where baptism is one of the public professions, but you don't get in a bunch of trouble. Most of us don't. Uh, but back then, you did. And um, so then, within the context of the first century, a decision to receive Christ to, and publicly professed was a personal decision. Again, you made it personally. That's, faith is always personal. Yeah, a, a parent can't do it for a kid. You learn about what Jesus came to do. You know that he just didn't die for the world, but he died for you. You received that personally. And then it's a personal decision with interpersonal consequences. John does what Paul did when he writes to this community. He urges them to remain within the community. He says, hang out. Keep coming back. Stay. And the reason why he does so is that there's individuals who are entering the church and they are drawing away individuals claiming, hey, we believe the same thing. You know, they, you go to this, you know, they talk about Jesus, so do we. And what John knows, because of his status as having been with Jesus, being able to determine really who speaks for God and who doesn't, says they're saying some of the same things, but it's not the same message. And that's what John does in this letter. He is pointing out things that seem to be within the context of Christian belief, but are really departures. And he warns them that they're in danger of stepping outside of Christian belief. And so what he does is tries to define stages of faith. I remember when I was at the University of Pennsylvania where I went to school, um, there was a guy, Chuck Angert, and we were involved in the same Christian group on campus. And uh, I had come to profess faith in Christ when I came to the University of Pennsylvania. And he told us a story about individuals walking from door to door in that community, and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And and he had learned how to deal with them, and this is what he did. <laughs> great, great approach. Uh, so they came, and he knew that they were going to try to convince him of something. And he said, okay, wait, 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 wait just a minute. Uh, let me just tell you something. I'm, I have an eternal relationship with God Almighty. He is my father and I am his child. He has forgiven my sins. He's going to walk with me in this life and bring me to be with him eternally in the next. Now, if there's anything you can add to that, I'll listen. 
And they said, oh, okay. And then, and then they left. Um, and what John does then is he, um, he underscores those things that are true for all who claim faith in Christ, who have heard what Jesus did and have taken it personally, put their faith in it. And putting faith in means that you're doing to Jesus relative to belief what you're doing with respect to that seat. We've talked about this before. There's a seat here. Do you believe that seat could hold me up? Of course so. Why isn't it holding me up? I'm not sitting in it. Let that seat represent what Christ came to do, sent by the Father. And this is really true. If you would ask me, Mike, um, if you were to die and stand before God, and he would say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say for most of my life? I would have said, well, yeah, that's easy, because I have gone to church all my life because I served in the church from when I was little. And I served in the church up until the time when the vestments that you wore, they weren't long enough, so mine were up about here. <laughs> People didn't continue to be serving in the place, and I did, and I wanted to go in. So I, 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 I rode my bike to church when the next person close to my age was probably 60 years older than me. And I, and so the pronoun is descriptive. Like, what's my hope based in? Me. And what I did, I came to a place of understanding that eternal life means I place my faith not in what I do. I don't sit in what I do, but I sit in what he did. So let that chair represent Christ. I came to a place where I understood I needed to transfer my trust from what I had done for God to what God had done for me. And that was a very difficult thing for me. I don't know why. It, I ended up, I asked all kinds of questions, and then finally this guy pinned me. I asked about the natives in Africa. Boy, this guy was so sick of me, and I really wanted to know. And he'd say, Mike, what are you going to do with what you know? And I said, well, what about those people who never heard about Jesus? Good question. I mean, do they get shipped off? And so, and he said, you know what, Mike, I can't speak for them. But what are you going to do with what you know? And I remember at that point, it was that point I understood what was happening. And I transferred my trust from what I had done for God to what God had done for me. I put my faith in. So I put my weight on what Jesus did. That's what how you become a Christian. And, and when that happens, and it happens a number of different ways, it can be a decision at a point in time, it could be something that gradually evolves. Oftentimes, there is a process, though. And that's why John talks about children and adolescents and adults. It's not a once and done. There are some things, though, and it begins with children being um, having sins are forgiven. And just so you know, this was not a, you know, we talk about it all the time, but there's Within Judaism, where many of all of the first believers came, uh, forgiveness wasn't something that you really believed in very deeply. Listen to what it says. Exodus 23, um, Moses says, See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guide you along the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. 
Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. So what he said, when you walk along and you're going to follow this angel and you're going to walk through the wilderness, if you sin against this, if you rebel against this angel, there is no forgiveness. And then Joshua said to the people somewhat later when Moses had passed away, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. So they did not live with the understanding or belief that sins could be forgiven. And what John's writing, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And again, there is within Judaism, we don't talk about this a lot, but there is no forgiveness. I want you to listen to this. This kind of much straighten this up, but there's no forgiveness for intentional sins within Judaism, ancient Judaism. I say that again. There's no forgiveness for intentional sins within Judaism. Uh, even in Hebrews, it says, here's what it says, and it's in the text, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, and look what it says, which he offered for himself and the sins the people committed in ignorance, unwittingly. Either I didn't know it was wrong, or I knew it was wrong, and I didn't know this was a violation of it. But sins committed in ignorance are covered by the blood the high priest brings. What about sins done intentionally? You're out. That's what happened with Moses. Somebody ends up gathering wood on the Sabbath. And he knew it was wrong, but he just wanted a couple days more with the firewood. And so Moses said to God, what, what should we do with this guy? I mean, he gathered wood. It's not like he <clears throat> built an idol or something like that. And he <clears throat> was communicated within the context of the Old Covenant. He used to be executed, and he was. No forgiveness of sins within Judaism. And by the way, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. What kind of sins is Jesus forgiving? Unintentional. And they didn't. They have no way of knowing I'm the Messiah because I haven't died and risen. When I rise, then they're going to know because only Messiahs rise from the dead. That's why we're in a good spot. We can look back. At this, Jesus didn't just die, he rose. Is he the Messiah? Yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the one, when we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. That was something that they didn't rely upon in Judaism. There wasn't forgiveness for intentional sins within Judaism, and there was no father. Um, John says to them, you know the father. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you know the father. Um, in ancient Judaism, you, if I was going to say, his, I wouldn't even I, I wouldn't even use a word for his name because he was that holy. You can't even say his name. And Jesus came along and he says, "Okay, yeah, when you when you're talking to call, you can call him Daddy. Daddy, I've never called him anything." And Jesus said, "That's what he wants you to call him." And so, as children of God, your sins are forgiven, and God is your Father. And that's where it begins. For all of us. That's for you to believe. For you to believe. Your sins are forgiven. And God is your Father. And what that means 
A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. The difference between a servant and a son or daughter is that a slave could lose their place in the family if they didn't do things well enough. But as a son or daughter within the household, you couldn't forfeit that place by messing up. Can you forfeit your place in the kingdom of God by messing up? You can't. You can't. And that's what John says. That's about children. Um, to enter God's family, means that your sins are forgiven and God is your father. Then he goes on to adolescence. What's the difference between a child and an adolescent spiritually? Adolescents have faced challenging circumstances. That's what adolescence is about. There is the evidence of endurance. Um, it says you have overcome the evil one. You are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. As John thinks about adolescence, Jesus' experience in the wilderness could well have been in mind. Look what it says. Let's read along. I'll read, and you follow. Matthew 3 says, And when Jesus was baptized, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know what I call this? A water experience. You could see God. He could hear God. It was light. And there was all kinds of presence of God. Look at what happens, and oftentimes in our life, and this is something that happens to us. We have water experiences where we experience God. And then what ends up happening to Jesus is what happens to us and what leads to adolescence because we don't stay within that context in which God's presence is so clear. I remember when I, from University of Pennsylvania, when I um, I went to a, a beach project one summer to be with other people who were trying to help other people get learn how to get the word out. So I spent the summer there. And I remember this guy who came, and he, and a lot of terrible things had happened to him. And he was talking about spending time in prayer, and this is what he said, and I'm not sure. Anyways, he said, I was talking to God, and I got to the place where I was kind of breaking down before him, and I was afraid to open my eyes because I thought he might be there. That's how real it seemed to him in the context of where he was. He, um, he experienced God. And we get those, some of us have those kind of things. What ends up happening though? If you get those, they don't last all that long, do they? Look what happens. So Jesus has a water experience and then, bam! Right after the water experience, here's what it says, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I just want you to know, in his rearview mirror, he can see the water. It just was there. He could remember. And all of a sudden, it's like, woof, he's in this completely different spot. And it goes on. Um, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Not hard to understand. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered, It is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, the temptation. Will Jesus use what he has to get what he wants? That's the temptation. Will Jesus use what he has? Will he leverage his connection with the Father? <clears throat> to get what he wants. Whose purposes is he most interested in? His own or the Father's? The Father said, I will be with you, and I will provide for you. He made him promises. But he came to that place where he became hungry. So the voice of the Father and the voice of his stomach now are clashing. They're dissonant. Well, yeah, I know you said, but I'm experiencing. And so... When there's a difference between what God says and what we experience, there is a crisis of faith. Do, I, do we believe him or not? What happens with adolescence, you end up being put in those places. And you're in places now. You can look back to time, perhaps, when your faith in Christ was simple. And it's not very simple now. And you wonder what you've done wrong. You've done nothing wrong. You're entering into adolescence. And what will happen in adolescence, what God says and what you experience are going to pull in different directions. When we get in those places, we feel frightened sometimes. Um, Jesus entered into this so that you could know that he sympathizes with you. And that's a really good thing to talk over with him, to be honest with him. You know what? God, here's the deal. I both believe you and don't. And I both know that you've said things to me, but what I'm going through is very disturbing. And sometimes we think, I can't say that. You, yes, you can. You can. Jesus understands that. He didn't sin, but he understands the pull. Um, what are the temptations? The wilderness. The temptation is use your connection to get God to provide for you. Turn this... Turn these low stones into bread, and what happens? Gets rid of the physical discomfort, right? Physical discomfort creates tension. Tension feels lousy, doesn't it? And so how do you get rid of the tension? Get rid of the physical discomfort. Turn this into bread. Jesus says, I'll hold. I'll stick with the hunger, because he said he's going to provide for me. And I don't need for him to prove anything to me. I'll hang on to my hunger. I'll hang on to his hand. Thank you very much. That's a good picture. Holding on to the reality of your experience and holding on to God's promises. That's what he does. He says, I don't need for him to prove anything. And then, so he said then, okay, let's bring you to the temple, to Jerusalem. Brings him to the temple, puts him on a high place, says, throw yourself down because he's promised. He'll send his angels, and they'll bear you up. and um, Use your connection to get God to protect you, to get rid of the emotional discomfort. So, you know, so if God proves that he's there, 
Then that will make it a little bit easier to swallow this hunger that you've got in your stomach. So, you know, so it's not only the physical discomfort, but there's the emotional discomfort. If you are dealing with unmet desires, unfulfilled desires, at some point, just so you know, I'm, at some point it creates doubts. It just does. When our needs go unmet, we wonder, oh, why don't I matter? At some level, now it might not be unbelievably obvious, but there is that, it is there. And what Jesus ends up doing then, uh, or the tempter says, okay, in order for, let's try to close the gap on any kind of emotional discomfort that this might be causing, this physical discomfort. So let's get rid of the emotional discomfort at least. At least let me do that. Throw yourself down. Angels come. You're good. And you know God's there. And Jesus holds on to his hunger and any kind of things he's feeling in old God's hands. I'll stick with where I am. I don't need to make him deliver me in order for me to believe that he's with me. So I'll hold. Thank you very much. Um, a mountain. Okay, and what he says is, I'll cause the whole world to go gaga for you. And Jesus says, forget it. I'm not interested in creating a kingdom of worshiping slaves. If I follow through, I'm not going to have worshiping slaves to bring to my father. I'm going to have children to bring to him. So, Thank you very much. I'm going to hold on to where I am, and I'm going to hold on to his hand, because I don't want to return to my father without my brothers and sisters coming as well. Hmm. There's a lot here that's unique to Jesus. When he is ascending to the place of the ruler of the world, I think he rebukes those authorities that have been functioning. So he is higher than angels at this point, and he needs to put them in their place. I'm not sure that we need to do that. You know what we need to do? I really don't think you need to rebuke Satan. You know what I think you need to do? I think you need to get to Jesus. That's what I think. Because Jesus knows how to do that. And when we place ourselves in him, it's a pretty safe place. There's a story about this uh, really terrible um, captain on the ship who was just a, a tyrant. And this guy was part of the crew, and this tyrant was there, and he was just beating the people, and he was ushering orders. And then one day this this other ship comes and takes over the boat, takes this captain, strips him of his authority, says, I'm the captain now. And this guy was being, this captain was going to be delivered to a port, but he could walk around on the boat, and um, that's what happened. So one day, this this guy who had been terrorized by this captain walking around on the boat, and he, the cold captain comes up and says, swab the deck. And he, you know, kind of goes to get them up. And then he, he says, wait a minute. Wait, wait. You're not the captain anymore. And he just, he wants to tough it out with them. I'm not going to listen to you. 
<laughs> and they got in a fight, and the captain, captain, old captain, really put them down, beat them up. Well, this guy limps up to the captain, the new captain, and says, I thought that he didn't have authority anymore. And what the captain said, he's more powerful than you, so here's what you need to do. When he threatens you, you come to me. Let me deal with him. Oh, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. The Bible has some things to say about things that threaten us. This guy had a vision once. I like this vision. And he saw himself. And there was forces of darkness coming at him. And what happened in this vision, he was, he could see himself and he could see these forces of darkness coming. And they were coming. And here's what happened. Then Jesus entered the picture, stood in front of this guy, and you know what the forces of darkness did? What they had to do. They bowed down. And then he saw in this vision that Jesus backed into him. And then he got it. Christ in me. Christ in me. And what John wants them to do is remember, hold on, and we'll talk about it again, hold on to promises. There's, there's a lot of stake here. Um, it seems there's a takeaway here for us. And what it is, is the need to cling to God's word in order to endure tension. God is not invent, God is not, I want you to listen to me. God is not invested in providing you with a tension-free life. He is not invested in that. And the purpose of the word and promises is not so that you can eliminate tension but so that you can endure it. Why do you need to connect with God? So it will make everything fine? It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen to me. What can happen, you cling to promises, not in order to eliminate tension, but in order to endure it. It's easier to walk through tension with him. Um, this is what marks the movement to adolescence, is that... We learn to cling to God, to manage tension. And it talks about adults. You know him who was from the beginning. And it says this twice. That's what adults are about. There's a progression here. Children are aware of what relates directly to themselves. Children are very self-obsessed. My sins are forgiven, and he's my father. We're good. It's all about me. And if you're a kid, it's all about you. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. When you're a child, then you grow up. And adolescence is a little bit different. There is a focus on learning to manage unmet needs and unfulfilled desires, which is about me and him. And, and it's kind of in between. And, and then adults are the least self-focused. They focus on him 
who is from the beginning. Their focus is on him. They gaze at him and glance at everything else. Um, Belief in God's character is foundational to living a godly life. And it's true, misbehaving is directly related to misbelieving. That's true. Misbehaving, and we do it. It's related to misbelieving because we do that. Um, there's a verse here. It's where the serpent said to the woman, you sh- shall not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, which is, you know, you can't trust what God says. Um, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent God calls God's word into question. But you know what he really does deeper than that? He called God's character into question. You know, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat from the tree is he doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. You know, God has is territorial, and he's kind of has this turf thing. So he doesn't want you to be think that you can claim anything that is his. He's kind of like that, and you can't trust him. That's basically what the serpent is alleging, that God is selfish and judgmental, that what God is aware of is knowing good and evil. That's what he's preoccupied with. You know what? That that was, we've talked about this before, that was really slippery. Here's a question. If you put your ear to God's heart in terms of the things he's deeply aware of, are you going to find good and evil? Is that what God is aware of? Wherever God looks, he looks to distinguish, is there good and is there evil? I've said this before, but it's interesting to me. Jesus came and he represents God. And what the serpent said is God is fluent in the language of good and evil. Right? That's what he basically is saying. You know what Jesus did? Jesus came. I've said this before, but it's interesting. Jesus came and somebody said, good teacher, what might, he said, stop. Why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God alone. Oh, wait, wait, oh, wait a minute. I thought that God was fluent in the language of good and evil. And you know what Jesus is basically saying? I don't get that. I don't, I don't talk good and evil. I talk God and not God. That's interesting. I'm not sure what you do with that. But you know what it suggests? God is not preoccupied with good and evil. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because God doesn't bow down to good and evil. God existed at a time when nothing else existed. So ultimately, if you put your ear, God doesn't is not thinking good and bad. Oh, I got I to gotta keep that bad from happening. God is above good and bad. Somebody said to Jesus, what good thing? And he did the same thing. Why do you ask me about what is good? You know what I think that tells us? When God looks at you, He's not going, he's not looking at your desires and going good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. He's not. He's not doing that. You know what he's doing? I have promises to give you, and if you hold on to them, it'll help you manage your tension. You won't walk through this thing alone. If you try to divide up your desires and try to figure out what's good and bad, you will not look to me. That's not what God's looking at. 
not what he's preoccupied with. He's not like Santa Claus, making a list, checking it twice. Um, what ends up happening with this? But this woman, uh, Eve, she believed it. And you know what happened? What the Bible says? When she saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. On the far side of losing sight of God's character, the thing that keeps us from misbehaving falls away. Again, all of us will mess up. The way to move in the direction of being who he wants you to be, listen to me. Get to know God. Connection, then correction. Focus on him. As your understanding of who he is becomes clearer, you will find, wait a minute, wait. If God's going to be with me, then I don't need to amass all the wisdom in the world to protect myself. Right? Right? If God is my protector, if that's so, do I need to get all the wisdom of the world to protect myself? No, I don't have to. And if God is the one who provides for me, do I need to grab and hoard all kinds of pleasure? No. So, if you wanted to be a person who wasn't so prone to protect yourself or grab at pleasure, what, what, what do we do? You might talk to God. And say, you know what, God? I think I need to understand that you're my provider. And that you're my, my, my protector. I lose sight of that. You've been beating yourself up. You've been taking yourself to the woodshed. Kicking yourself around for all your disobedience and misbehaving. You've been focusing on your misbehavior and glancing at the Father just shamefully and looking at your misbehavior and glancing at the Father. Reverse your gaze and glance. Look at your Father. Your sins are forgiven. You're his son, his daughter. As you look to him, he gives you what is required to enable you to manage tension. You get to know him. That's the way the Christian life works. Children, adolescents, and adults. Um, after dealing with stages of faith, John zeroes in on desires. Quickly, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Desires of the flesh, you know what that is? Desires of the flesh, sensuality. It's desires arising from the flesh. Sensuality. Things that feel good. In Greek thought, desires and pleasures hold down the soul. In Greek thought, desires and pleasures hold down the soul 
that's trying to rise to God. So, in Greek thought, what you had to do is you had to fight against pleasures. You had to make sure you didn't do anything that was pleasing. (laughs) Judaism of Jesus' day, they didn't believe that because it's not in the Old Testament. The word for pleasure, it's not a bad thing. It's that people have things that they enjoy. Do you know what the you know what the Old Testament throws a flag at? Not wanting or desiring. The word for desiring or wanting is the word for coveting. Coveting is neutral. It's both positive and negative. So when it says you shall not covet, it's you shall not want. What am I not supposed to want anything? Does that mean I should eat things I don't like? You know what it says about wanting? What prescription does it put against wanting? Don't want what other people have. That's what it says. It's not wanting that's the issue. It's when I look at what you have and I want what you have. That's what Cain did with Abel. And you know what ended up happening? It went after him. That's what God's against. If you put your eyes on what somebody else has, and if you let that stew for a while, you know what that becomes? It becomes not, I want what you have, but now I want to get rid of you because you have it. Is God against that? Absolutely he is. See, it's not the wanting that's the issue. It's the wanting what somebody else has. Is God against pleasure? Come on. That was Greek and that was Judaism followed along, but the the Bible doesn't indicate that. The Bible doesn't say that God and pleasure are opposed to one another. In fact, it says in his pleasures, in his presence are pleasures forever. In his presence are pleasures forever. Tell you something. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he died for you? Are you his child? Are you his child? Are you putting your faith in what he did? Here's the deal. Your sins are forgiven. God is your father. And here's the deal. A hundred years from now, you say, Mike, what's what's heaven going to be like? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. You will be pleased. That's what I'm telling you. You will be smiling. God's not against pleasure. It's like joy is, joy is going to be like a fountain. Desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes. You know what desire of the eyes is? Superficiality. It's when how things look is what matters. That's what desires of the eyes. And so it's, it's about, I want you, hey, what do you think of this sweater, by the way? Oh, it's, that's what desires of the eyes, it's how things look is what matters. You know, how I dress is my strongest suit. That's not really true. But, and what Jesus came to say, it's not what outside this matters, it's what's inside. And you know what the deal is? Some of you look like a mess. But God is not looking at your outside. He's looking at your heart. He's looking at your motives. You know what he's looking at? That you're trying to get to know him. And it it doesn't always look nice. But you really are. You're making room for his promises. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. You really wouldn't. You're trying. And he notices that. He sees it. You know what he thinks about that? Good for you. 
because he looks past the outside to the inside. Superficiality, the world judges everything by how it looks. There's some people that are a mess that are good inside. There's some people who look good inside. It's not that pretty. And God looks on the outside. But the way the world works, it's sensuality and superficiality. And so the last one, the pride of life, what's that? Showmanship. Showmanship. And what showmanship is about, it's about possessing and parading. It's it's about getting things and showing them off. It's like, how are we to manage the gravitational pull of sensuality, superficiality, and showmanship? Two things. Number one, hold on to God's promises. Hold on to God's promises. He gives us his promises so by them we can escape the corruption in the world caused by desires. And a second thing it talks, hold on to God's promises, especially one. And worship team, come on up. We've talked about it. It's the thing that comes first. Hold on to the promise of forgiveness. It says that when we get to a place where the things that God wants to build into our lives are not happening, what Peter said, it's because we become nearsighted and blind and forget that our former sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been talking about this and saying it as a little mantra. For some of you, it really could be helpful. And I'm going to I'll say it one more time. We'll probably repeat it. If you find yourself doing something wrong and you and you end up talking to him about it rather than what I want you to remember. We talked about God in you, God with you, good ahead of you, guaranteed. You know what I want you to do? Add a word. Still. I want you to do this. And when you mess up, I encourage you to do this. This will help you hold on to forgiveness. Thank him. After you tell him, you know, God, he's, thank you that you're still in me. Thank you that you're still with me. Thank you that your the good is still ahead of me. Guaranteed. When you do that thing wrong, I want you to pause. God, that was wrong, but I want you to thank him because that's what confession is, saying the same thing. Thank you that you're still in me. Thank you that you're still with me. Thank you that good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think of that thing you did recently. Yeah, that thing. That one. The one that causes you to kind of want to slide away from God. I want you to hear what he's saying to you, and I want you to try to grab it. What God says, listen. Your sins are forgiven. And I am your father. I am still in you. I am still with you. Good is still ahead of you. Guaranteed. Can you hold on to that? Can you say that to him? Quietly. God, thank you that you're still in me. God, thank you that you're still with me. God, thank you that good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed, because Jesus brought a new covenant, and you forgive all my wickednesses and remember my sins no more. One last time, thank you that you're still in me.
You fill in the rest of the blanks. Quietly. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your promises. I pray we'd grip onto them like the way we grip onto the wheel when we're going across Minnesota on I-90 and icy days when the wind blows from right to left. I do ask that we would cling, hold to your promises tightly. That's when we go from children to adolescence when we hold on to your word and it helps us to endure difficult times because we don't walk through them alone. Thank you for your promises that you're still in us, you're still with us, you're still ahead of us, guaranteed. Help us to cling to them. In Jesus' name, amen.